Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field. And then together we interview a special guest about their work in design because design is everywhere. And so are we. This week, we're chatting about social impact architecture that creates social awareness in the built environment. I'll be joined by David Silverman, who's principal at Silverman Trykowski Associates, an imaginative architecture and design studio that designs for well-being. And later on, we'll chat with Pascal Sablon, an architect, activist, mentor, and the 2021 Whitney M. Young Jr. Award recipient, an award that distinguishes an architect or architectural organization that embodies social responsibility and actively addresses a relevant issue such as affordable housing, inclusiveness, or universal access. Together, they're going to talk with us about social impact architecture, what it is, what it looks like, and how it can impact a community. But first, I want to thank some of our amazing new members. Our members are what drive everything we do at the Design Museum, including this podcast. So thank you to Anya Shapiro, who recently did a student membership. Love our student members. Matthew Page, who subscribed to our Design Museum magazine, and Benjamin Frank, who got an individual membership. Thank you three, and thank you all. Thanks to all our members. Your support makes this show possible, makes the Design Museum possible. If you like this podcast, Design Museum Everywhere has so many programs for you to enjoy that open up the world of design. Join a global community of design thinkers and change makers. We'll see our exhibitions, our live events, our magazine, provide our members with unique opportunities to learn about, engage with, and experience design. We really bring the world of design to your doorstep. So check it out, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership and consider supporting this show and this museum. And with that, onto this week's topic, social impact architecture. Architecture is more than just designing buildings. In fact, one can even say that good architecture can help design a better world. I'm very happy to be joined by my guest co-host this week, David Silverman, to learn more about architecture that places the public interest at the heart of the design process. David is a principal at Silverman Trykowski Associates, or STA for short. David began practicing architecture in 1992 while earning his bachelor's degree in architecture from Boston Architectural College. After working for local area design firms, he went on to work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as an in-house architect and later as part of the project team overseeing the design and construction of MIT's 720,000 square foot award-winning Ray and Maria Stata Center. David is a longtime supporter of the Design Museum. He was our board chair for many years. David and I have had about a million conversations, so this is just one more on the list. And I wanted to say, together with his amazing wife, Felice, David and Felice were awarded our Distinguished Medal of Service for all of their service to the Design Museum over the years. So two important people to me and to the museum. David's mission has always been to provide beautiful, thoughtful design that responds to a client's needs. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Excited to do this. Excited to talk about something that's so dear to my heart and something that I think is important, especially in this day and age as things are a little bit crazy for all of us. But uh, looking forward to the conversation today. Let's start basic, although this is this is the million dollar question. What is social impact architecture? Can you define it for us? I think everybody has their own definition. For me, I've always 
as an architect, as a designer, thought about how what I do can impact others in a positive way. I really do think a lot about how we as architects can make better spaces for our clients and for community. And so whether it's at the scale of a you know, small interior space or a large urban plaza, I think we are always trying to think about you know, how we can make others' lives better. It's interesting, the American Institute of Architects and the Boston Society of Architects recently kind of updated their strategic plans to really focus on equity and to focus on uh, resiliency, right, with the understanding of climate impacts that are happening in our world today. This isn't something that's optional, right? It's not something that for architects, you know, social impact is something that we have a choice of doing. I think it's uh, incumbent upon all, all architects to really focus on these issues and to, to try to make a better, better place for everybody. I'm curious, you know, as you, I'm always interested in like parts of the process between two kind of phases. How do you take all this stuff from the community? What does that look like then when you go back to the, the client and you're sort of like, we learned a lot and we got to change some things up based on what we learned. How are you presenting that to them? Well, part of it is how the data is collected, right? So in this particular case, we are tracking the responses, not just what the responses were, but who gave us the responses to make sure that there is diversity, right? So um, if the community is, you know, 50% white and, you know, 20% Spanish speaking people and 20% black and et cetera, like you want to make sure that all of those communities are represented in the dialogue, right? If you get feedback mostly back from from the white community, then you know you have reached some people. And so you start to look at the data. So that I'd say that the, that's part of the design of the process. But I think to answer your question, when we go back to them, it really is about this is what we heard. And then you show them what you heard and you show them that it is a good cross-section of the community. And you do show them that, well, we 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 did we do understand that there was a request for this kind of space, right? But but it wasn't overwhelming. There's more of a request for this kind of space here, which we think can accommodate this need. So, and then we show them how it works, right? With our plans and drawings and the tools we use to communicate with the community. We've also done, you know, I think the, the, the um, we've done presentations. Uh, we did a presentation in uh, Roxbury for a Spanish speaking community. We were picking finishes for the interior design of a residential building. And we realized that a large you know, subset of the community there did not speak English. And so we had a Spanish-speaking um, person on our staff, and she stepped in and she presented everything in, in Spanish to the community. And, and that, that went a long way, I think. And so that, that's part of the answer, I think, too, Sam, is recognizing who we're we presenting to, right? And making sure that we have all and how and making sure we have all the tools to, to, to communicate what we need to communicate. What about giving this building or space form, how does what you learn from the community change how you actually give form to the space? Maybe using the bodega as an example, what, what did that end up sort of like looking and feeling like? I think in bodega, we um, came up with a series of, um, you know, a color palette that we thought would be the right direction. But in the end, they actually engaged um, a, um, artists to do murals on the walls inside the store, which is, which is always great, right? Like you want to see that direct community engagement, you know, hopefully you're also creating jobs, right? You know, throw a couple extra bucks at the artist to do a mural in the store and, you know, every, everybody wins because it just adds that, that extra level of personal touch to it. We've had some interesting conversations on that Malden project around the courthouse itself because you walk into it and it's all dark wood, 
you know, and all these other things. What does that convey, right, to the person visiting? Yeah, somebody actually in one of the chats at one of our uh, community meetings uh, posted in the Zoom that the the wood itself held these memories, these bad memories, and like, which which you know, you look at a nice piece of millwork, you don't always think that, but but they're right. So does that mean you take it out? Does it mean you paint it and do something else with it? Do you know? So it's interesting to kind of think about meaning, especially when you're working with existing buildings. Yeah, I mean, all of these elements, color, materials, form, all convey something to somebody. And so, you know, maybe impossible to keep everyone happy, but possible to include more voices in it so that you feel more, I keep coming back to the word authentic. Is that how you think about it? Being an authentic space that's like, can be loved by a large group of people? So I think there is something about that. Um, I think there is something about uh, those spaces and places that we all have been where we have fond memories. And I think that there is something about that, right? There is something about the quality of the space where people feel ownership of it. Even I've been thinking a lot lately. I mean, the, the pandemic has all kind of sent us outside more. And so I think about this a little bit when I am walking around at my daily walks. And so part of his nature right? And how nature has started to become a little bit more personal and uh, we've become more in touch with nature, but there's also just like public plazas and cities and how they make you feel. If you think about like running into a market, the kind of energy that's happening, those markets can be anywhere, but they feel like place and they feel important to you. A lot of that has to do because of the community that's there and the interactions you're having with other people. So I think that that's a big part of all of the social impact architecture, I think, is the people part. Is, is really key. And as much as architects, you know, might like to think about their buildings, right? I know a lot of architects like to take the professional photos without people in them, right? But, 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 but we never do because like to us, like buildings are for people, right? And, you know, it, it really, is, if we're talking about community and social spaces and bringing people together, that's something that has to be thought about is how do people interact with the architecture? Yeah, that's got me thinking. You hear from architects, you hear from every designer, but particularly with architects, like there's that building I designed, right? Like that. And how do we move towards the like, we designed that building together? Has STA or any firms that you've seen like move to that next phase of like co creation? We've had a couple episodes about sort of like more things like services and maybe like digital things, but maybe a little bit more malleable than (laughs) a building. But I wonder if you've thought about like that next phase of like, not just taking in feedback from the community, but actually like designing together. So we do that. That's a part of our process. I wouldn't say it's, um, you know, we don't put the plaque in the lobby that says that it was designed by everybody because, you know, we just don't do that for our own buildings for SDA. But, you know, one quick example, when I worked at MIT, I worked in a, um, the, the Frank Gehry Design Data Center. That entire first floor of the building is public space. And my job as a design project manager there was to, um, you, to use your word, co-create, right? So the architects, yes, they're world-famous, amazing architects. They're going to do a great job, but they're dependent on a good client, right? And so I saw my job as figuring out, okay, well, if we're going to give all of this area to the students, because it was named after the students, it was named the Student Street. I was like, well, well we're certainly not going to give a public place on MIT's campus to the students and let them go crazy, right? So so what is the program? So I walked around the campus and I came up with a program for the architects that they designed to. And we did bring students together to ask them what they wanted. Uh, furthermore, a big part of my job was introducing people at MIT from different departments, right, that didn't know each other. And so there was the 
um, there, there was a fitness center that we introduced to the daycare center folks, right? Because we wanted to be able to have swim times for the kids. There were, there were, there was going to be food service in the building. So it's the same thing. Like who in the building needs the food service? There was a registrar's office. We also expected that students were going to, or, or, or student groups were going to be able to exhibit things on the student street. And we wanted to make sure that whatever they were exhibiting was not going to be offensive to the children in the daycare center. So there was a lot of this kind of like figuring out the ebb and flow of the space, who was in it and making sure that they could all kind of commingle <laughs> in this public place. And so I think because of that, that particular space became quite successful, but I didn't personally feel like I needed a plaque on the wall anywhere saying that I did that. I just know that it was an important thing to do. I love the way you think about this stuff, David. Thank you for sharing. Love this stuff. My pleasure. Listeners, to see more of David's work, visit sta-design.com. And David, stick around and we'll bring Pascal Sablon into the conversation after a break. Design Museum Everywhere's week-long event, Design Museum Week, is coming soon. Join us April 25th to 29th to celebrate accomplishments, share new ideas, and inspire through design. The week will reconceptualize design's role in 21st century systems and issues through dozens of events that mash up our 12 impact areas. Workplace, business, play, entrepreneurship, sustainability, education, healthcare, social impact, data visualization, diversity, vibrant cities, and civic innovation. Design Museum Week 2022 will feature five days of hybrid online, offline events that spark conversation, inspire leaders, and educate professionals working in all areas of design. While most sessions will be virtual, we look forward to welcoming attendees for in-person gatherings as well in cities across the U.S. Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to get your tickets today. And we're back. And we're joined by our special guest, Pascal Sablan. Pascal is an associate at the architecture firm Ajay Associates, and she is the founder and executive director of Beyond the Built Environment, which engages community through architecture to advocate equitable, reflectively diverse environments. In 2021, Pascal was named the AIA Whitney M. Young Jr. Award recipient, PMI Future 50 honoree, and Cranes New York Notable Black Leaders honoree. An architect and mentor, Pascal is only the 315th Black female architect to receive licensure in the United States. So Pascal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here and to tell my story. So really excited. Thank you again. Love it. Let's start there. Tell me your story. How did you find your way into architecture and what are you working on these days? Okay, so first, um, I've always been an artist as a kid, always drawing. Um, and I was commissioned to do a mural uh, when I was about 11. And as I'm drawing this multicultural jungle gym, a passerby walks by and says, wow, you could draw straight lines without a ruler. That's a great <laughs> skill for an architect to have. And just like kept walking. And honestly, if this person didn't have this out loud thought, which really what it was, I don't know when architecture really would have been offered to me as a career path. 
But once he said it, you know, <laughs> shout outs to him, white shirt, blue jeans, you know, thank you so much for that comment because he really gave me clarity in terms of what I wanted to do. So I always joke and say nobody's ever surprised that I became an architect because that is what I've been proclaiming since I was 11 years old. And then um, after kind of creating kind of art and architecture as like my directive, which kind of scared my parents and kind of said, I don't know if this profession's for you. Uh, they were awesome about signing me up for different seminars that explain what architecture is, right? And one of them was in New York City at One Penn Plaza. And I remember using like the train to come to the city um, and to participate. And it was a group maybe of 20 to 30 kids. I was the only woman and my mom came with me. So love it. Only mom. Come on. <laughs> um, and she's like, you see, like you're the only girl. And I'm like, but I'm here. Right. And this program was so amazing. And I wish I could find like the original information on it because it took us to construction sites, newly constructed projects, architecture firms. I got to see models being made. It completely solidified what I thought I wanted to do and then uh, applied to schools. I ended up going to Pratt Institute for my bachelor's degree in architecture. Um, and then because of mom, I also got my master's degree in science and advanced architectural design at Columbia University in the city. So that was like my educational trajectory, if you will. While I was in school, I got an internship at Eris Architects, and it was the time where they were in the competition for the African Burial Ground National Monument. And so it was really powerful that my very first project as an intern, not claiming any greatness here, just as an intern, was really watching how the different designs had to be presented to the community, how it was really an interactive kind of experience, the responsibility of architecture to be not just beautiful, but have meaning and to teach uh, was all, and to provide justice for those who didn't have it, right? And so that really gave me a lens of the way I thought about architecture as well. And then post-graduation, I worked at FX Fowl, FX Collaborative, I believe is their name now, for 11 glorious years in the international studio, mostly working on projects all over the world. So I didn't get kind of selected into one typology. I was able to work on residential buildings, office buildings, museums, bridges, so transportation. So it was just really exciting to be able to get a taste of all the little components and different programs that architecture has to offer. From there, I went to S9 Architecture, was there for a few years and got to really work on New York-based projects. Like international work is so dope, no shade, <laughs> but like I really didn't know much about like the local building code, right. zoning processes and the different agencies that you have to work with. And S9 was super great about allowing me to expose that. I got to work on some great projects, the Cleveland Foundation headquarters in Ohio, the Bronx Point project in New York, which has the first ever hip hop museum, 542 affordable units, community spaces. Also, it just kind of accumulated a lot of those principles about ex community engagement. And again, architecture, that's part of the design justice kind of strategy. And then now I am at the Sir David Ajay's hey office here. I'm super hyped. Um, um, to be working again about projects that centered on research, understanding the legacy, the site, not just what's there now, but what was there before, and then really trying to create justice through all the projects. So David is very particular about which projects we take on, how is it benefiting that community? And so I believe the project I'm allowed to talk about <laughs> that I'm working on is the uh, National Palace of Haiti, which is amazing because I'm actually Haitian uh, as well, first generation. And so to be able to speak my, you know, cultural language in business meetings is blowing my mind. 
and um, the um, Vision for Barbados project, which was just recently published. And so that's also uh, one of my projects. But again, speaking about architecture and design that's speaking to place communities of color and the justice of rebuilding, the resiliency, the sustainability, um, the legacy, the history is all kind of accumulating together. So I think all of these steps that we talked about really kind of position me really well to be here. Oh, that sounds amazing. What a story. I, and I just love the... <laughs> The gentleman saying, you should be an architect. And you're like, ding. I, I wonder, because that's obviously such a moment. Um, I wonder if you can remember also like the moment you realize the real impact of architecture on society, like beyond like, okay, we're creating these buildings, but like the impact it has on people. Well, you know, I think I know when that is. My parents, my my mom's parents, my grandparents live in Haiti. And so my mom promised them every other year we would travel to see them. And every other year, we got to just pick another place to travel to and explore. And so what was very clear to me at a very young age is that wherever we were traveling to, the architecture was very different, right? It wasn't our house in Queens. Like when we were in Switzerland, that looks very different from the homes that we saw in Paris. And that was very different from the homes that we saw in Haiti. And that was very different from the homes that we saw in the city versus the kind of country. And so it really became clear to me that architecture is at least bespoke to that local community. And so that's why I really gravitate towards projects that really try to make it so intrinsic and so unique to that client, to that community, to that place that you can't even pick up the building and move it down two blocks and it would lose its relevance, right? And I think that that's really powerful to embed culture into the built environment. And so I think through my travels as a, as a little one, definitely got me ready for all the traveling that I'm doing now. But that was really my first indication that architecture is not just what we think it should be, but really a reflection of what's there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And David and I were chatting a little bit about that before. You know, this, this episode is about social impact architecture. And we kind of made the point that that's all, our, all architecture makes social impact. <laughs> it's whether it's, is it good? Is it bad? And so I'm curious how you think about social impact architecture when it's done well when it's done poorly like what what makes it successful what makes it gives, gives it that positive social impact well it's a that's a great question because um you're right i think all architecture is political right you're not there's no neutrality in it you're, you're serving some and you're not serving others and i really think about not just the end product but also the process in which we do architecture and that's part of the justice work right it's not imposing what we think you need but it's actually becoming a resource for those to understand how they have an important part in designing and deciding their built environment and future. And so, you know, I'm really proud and honored to receive the Whitney M. Young Jr. Award because his speech at that conference talked about our irrelevance as a profession who has been thunderously silent on the fight for civil rights and justice, right? And so thinking about what could be great uh, justice examples, for me, one of my favorite is ADA, the American Disability Act, where there was a community that felt disenfranchised by the profession and by the built environment and said, hey, we need you to design for us. And as a profession, we're like, no, 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 we're trying to make really tall, shiny buildings. We don't have time to make architecture acceptable and equitable for you, right? And they went above our heads. You know, they uh, a group of demonstrators went to City Hall in front of those steps and climbed on their forearms and elbows as a visual and, you know, emotional 
plea for how the built environment has failed them. And this is one of my favorite things because I, I think it really put architecture and design profession in its place to understand we are not the owners of architecture, but the conduits and the resources. And if we are not serving particular populations, they absolutely have the right and my encouragement to fight for it. Because now, whether you want to or not, you're designing for ADA. And so it's important that we start to recognize and hear the calls of those who are saying the built environment is hurting us. And honestly, a lot of those practices and that has been put in place for that group has actually benefited society as a whole, right? Like me and my stroller a few years ago, man, always looking for those ramps, right? (laughs) Like the accessibility of things became great because it's not only about like those most impacted, but everyone in between. And so I really think uh, great architecture and great design is one that includes the community in the process, thinks about and considers and designs for not just those who's cutting the check, but everyone impacted by the design. And then also reaching for empowering the legacy of those that were there into the built environment and making sure that it also is a supporting scaffolding performing the future that they envision for themselves and just being a consistent voice in that process, having post-occupancy surveys, having community members be part of the design team to review your progress and to provide comments. It's not just a community board meeting with some cold pizza on a rainy day <laughs> and say, check, we, we did engage the community. Yeah, no, it's so much more than that. And that trust that we would build with those local communities would regain the relevancy of us as a profession in, again, the fight for civil rights and justice. This is really great. One thing I I think, um, Pascal, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about is empathy. You know, everything you're saying about engaging the community is right on. When Sam and I were talking earlier, we were talking about how architects are designing for people or designing for the community and what all that means is it relates to social impact architecture. But um, I I think empathy plays a big part of this. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about that in your process. Sure. And I think that's why um, I talk about engaging the local community so much because it's very hard for me to empathize and sympathize if I, I don't hold those same fears. I don't hold those same experiences. And so really creating a platform that allows for that leveling um, for that exchange is really powerful and critical. And also recognizing that there's just some shoes that I will never fit in, but hearing the voices of those who say, Pascal, this is an issue that we need you to fight for us to do or be able to fight against. And an example of that is jails, prisons, and places of detention. I've taken a strong stance that I think we've reached the capacity. We have enough beds. We good, right? And But like, let's think about it. Like That increase in beds and, and, and that capacity has not reduced or changed crime rates, right? So we need to disassociate the idea of black and brown bodies in chains as the equation of security and safety. It's not. And so for me, I haven't knock on wood, been (laughs) arrested or been part of that process, nor anybody close to me going through that either. So it's not that I, it's something that I sympathize with. It's something that I'm empathetic about, right? It's that I'm hearing those talk about their experiences there, how traumatic it was, the injustice of the built environment, how we're creating structures that literally extract bodies out of their communities, right? Some of these private prisons have an 80% to 100% occupancy mandate requirement. So when these structures are being built, there's also lobbyists that are changing things that used to be a fine into a minimum days in prison kind of sentencing, right? So it's not just, oh, we're going to put nicer colors and and we're going to have more natural light. No, the structure in itself is unjust. That's like saying you're going to bedazzle a collar around my neck. 
there shouldn't be a collar on my neck in the first place, right? And so I get a lot of pushback from this in the design community, especially that we should be a part of that, be, be at the seat at the table, right? But why should I be at a table where I'm the person on the menu, to be quite frank, right? Can we not just build a whole other table? And I kind of talk about in here, I'm going to fangirl a little bit more about being at AJ Associates, is so much of my previous professional career was me trying to convince people that there was an actual problem. Whereas I've come in here, we've all recognized as a problem. What we're debating is how to best solve that issue, right? And so I'm having a hard time saying, I'm going to spend hours, energy, time, passion, love, brilliance, all of it, spirit, into a table trying to convince people why this table is no good, rather than build or and or sit at another table where we're already at that position and start thinking about restorative justice. What are new typologies that we can start exploring? What are really the issues that are plaguing those inmates? Is it mental? Is it community? Is it lack of resource? These are the things. And also, be clear about the profitability of us being in prisons in the first place. What products are being produced by, by the inmates and at what fraction of a cost to produce it. So let's just be real clear. And so, you know, that is something that I try to, when, when you ask about empathy, David, that's where I'm thinking that I land because it's not something that, that directly impacts me again. <laughs> but it's something that I, I'm very passionate about and I'm ready to defend in any conversation, in any room, at any place, at any point in time. It's a great answer. Well, I do want to ask you about beyond the built environment. I'd like to know more about that. Thank you. Um, so I actually joined uh, NOMA in 2009 uh, in the New York chapter specifically um, and was part of the board for many years and held very various positions and then ultimately became president. Uh, in 2016, graduated to the national board as the historian and also uh, served as a Northeast regional vice president. And in this years of collective you know, responsibility, which is what I like to call it, I noticed that we're so responsive and reactive to the injustices, right? We're constantly working to dismantle obstacles and issues that are in the way. And I really wanted to just celebrate people. I really wanted to just amplify amazingness. And so leveraging my network and now my newfound awareness about the systems of oppression from a local and national level, I built this uh, organization called Beyond the Built Environment, which is really about elevating and celebrating the work that we do of women and BIPOC designers, but also for the lens of um, inspiring the next generation, but also providing the justice and recognition that we deserve all along, as well as a moment of record keeping and documentation. Because, you know, I am, you know, a wannabe historian. I call myself a historian, but I really think that this it's incredible to document history. And so we have a series of programs that's all about that. And one of the most successful and most notable is Say It Loud uh, exhibitions. And so we've curated 27 exhibitions so far and they're local activations. So so if we do a Say It Loud Virginia, then we're elevating the work of women and people of color of Virginia. And the reason we're doing this is we're breaking this narrative that there can only be one woman architect at the time, one person of color. So by having it kind of be site and local specific, then it allows us to have programming for the local community to participate and say, oh, I know that building. Oh. I live in that building and I had no idea this is the face and this is the person who's done this great work. It also was to fight this narrative that we can't find y'all. Right. Here we are. 
Here we are. Here we are. And so with every new exhibition, it actually um, creates content for our great diverse designers library that basically holds the work of everyone who's ever been featured in a Say It Loud. And as of today, we're at 671 amazing profiles and growing. And we have uh, Say It Loud North Carolina opening up this month, uh, Say It Louder Ohio happening in Knowlton uh, School of Architecture at Ohio State. In March, we're going to do Say It Loud Melbourne and Australia. I'm super hyped. Um, and so literally just trying to create this narrative. And this great diverse designers library is completely free, no paywall, and will continue to grow and is accessible for everyone, whether it be students, professionals, uh, teachers, media publications, developers, potential clients, and it's sequenced by both last name and by location. So if you're in an area or you're looking for an area, you can sort by that way as well. Um, so that's the Say It Loud and the library that comes to that. We also have Say It With Media. And this idea, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, is this, <laughs> this idea that it's not just a matter of me cultivating this information and putting it on this platform, but then now passing the baton to all these media publications to take it and fly with it. So I'm asking media publications to do a few things. One, to track and report the quantity of women and BIPOC designers that they feature in their publication, to commit to increasing it by 5% annually until a minimum of 15% is reached. Uh, two, to use their platform to educate and share the stories about how architecture can be used to heal and have been used to harm. Uh, to call us great, uh, to recognize our contributions and to kind of speak to us in our greatness in that capacity. And then lastly, this work is really self-submitting, right? And so there's a lot of historical content and historical uh, contributions that is not being captured by my work. But as you know, media publications, you have that team. So I need you to also reach back. I am so tired of getting my you know Black history lessons from Instagram memes. Like I need to know about these important figures way before that and in print and verified and kind of elevated. And so that's to say with Media Pledge, we have seven media publications who've signed on nationally with an, a total of 318 monthly impressions. So I'm really excited about that. And I encourage my Beyond the Built Environment community to subscribe to those publications, to support those publications, and to submit your work to these publications as well, because they're eager to find our information and resources. Um, I'm also working on a series of children's books called Learn Out Loud, um, which is basically taking those people from the Say Loud exhibitions, creating caricatures of them with 3D pop-ups of their work with the words, I can too. So the little ones practice the self-affirmation that they too can be an architect, they too can change the world. Um, and then lastly is See It Loud, which is an augmented reality app and camp that we're developing, which is really uh, focused on the preteens and teens, which is most likely to have a device, which will, again, identify the projects that are submitted for Say Loud exhibitions near you. So you'd open your device, it'll say, ooh, two blocks north into the west, you can see a building designed by a woman architect. And when you get closer, you get the headshot, you get to know a little bit about the architect, and you can actually draw uh, a, an image about, about the building and capture on your device and see it 3D imposed on the building at one-to-one -one scale using augmented reality. So I'm really trying to create these programs that start to support that full pipeline from really small kids with a pop-up book to teens and preteens with the uh, augmented reality app, and then the Say Aloud exhibition, which is for students and for professionals. That's fantastic. You're amazing. And I'm just like, I've been a fan. Um, like I said, I've been watching the work that you do via LinkedIn and social media and just like just blown away and inspired by not only your energy, but also how you're creating this platform that's going to help 
so many people I'm sure already has. And that, that's what I'm wondering. Do you have any stories of young people who may have been a young Pascal who maybe didn't, you know, get someone saying you should be an architect, but they're seeing, you know, a black female architect for the first time, maybe like, are you, are you hearing those stories of people being like, I, I want to get, I want to do this. Well, what's been happening, what's been really nice. And I, it started with Say It Loud, uh, Pennsylvania, where they actually picked a gallery that was like a community gallery and literally programmed the, the bejesus out of this exhibition. Every other day there was something happening. And one of them was this cre incredible youth day where the kids would come in and kind of look at which project they liked and then created these Legos or with popsicle sticks replications of these projects and then stood in front of it. It was super dope. But then also I, I wanted to just kind of say like, you don't always have to do an organization or, or initiatives or programs. It's just like getting involved. And I did a lecture or participated in a panel um, with AIA Brooklyn years ago. And at the end, this young woman came up to me and she said, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but you came to my high school years ago for career day and talked about you being an architect and the work that you're doing all over the world. And I just graduated from City College with my degree in architecture. I was like, <laughs> um, so, you know, I made all of the scenes, you know, but I just say, say that to say, you have no idea what your touch points impact people. Like that gentleman who walked by again with the white shirt and the blue jeans. I don't think he ever even thought about that again, but like it literally changed my life. And so I say all this to say is be engaged to the extent that you can be. And you have no idea how powerful and how much that can really ripple into society and that we can all kind of make an equitable and just kind of profession and the world together. I love this conversation. And I just love thinking about all these new young folks coming into the field and just transforming how we even think about architecture. And hopefully we can drop the social impact because it's just going to be architecture. But I'm curious for both of you uh, in the here and now, in terms of like roles and responsibilities of architects as we see it today, like what's missing and what does sort of a new architect need to be thinking about? What, what tools do they need to be adding to their toolkit as they get out there in the world? I guess, Sam, I'll say that... Um... You know, like Pascal, I, as you know, have been involved in youth programs myself to try to engage kids in, you know, what they can be, right? And um, had a nonprofit where we went into schools and um, in, in Boston high schools and you did a lot of what you're talking about, Pascal, right? Bring the kids onto job sites. And it's not to turn them into architects. It's just to show them the community. But I feel like, you know, education of architects is is like a lot of higher ed is a little broken, right? I think we don't necessarily see the kind of diversity in architecture schools that we should, but that's in some places is starting to change. Where I went to school at the Boston Architectural College, uh, they really focused on that for the last decade or so, and in the results are definitely there, which are which is inspiring. Um, but I think that the this notion of of empathy and you know really kind of thinking about others is is one of those things in our educational process that isn't always there and i think that um in fact I'll, you know to tell a story about when i was a student i remember once talking about how the intended design consequence of one of my designs was going to make somebody feel a certain way where and my critics were like you can't say that. You don't know these people. You don't know how they're supposed to feel. You just have to design it for yourself. And that is very, that's still happening today in a lot of places. I think Pascal can, you know, confirm that. And so I think that the more we appreciate others and their needs and try to understand other people and 
to me, that's that's a tool that's really critical, right? And it doesn't matter how how young or old you are, right? That goes across our entire profession. I couldn't agree more. And you know, I was trying to debate where I could like piggyback off of what David just said because I agree with so much of it. Um, the first I'll say is, you know, for me, a, a quick story that I often share is when I was attending Pratt Institute, a professor asked me and another student to stand in one of the architecture history classes in like the first two weeks of school. So I stood up thinking I'm being volunteered for something. And he said, okay, for instance, these two will never become architects because they're black and because they're women. And I remember being so shocked that a professor who didn't know my name or my capacity would make such a strong proclamation. I was also like surveying the room and realizing in this space of like 60 plus kids that me and this one other girl are the only two black people in the in the area and that nobody else kind of said anything. And so when I sat back down, the classmate to my left, I'll never forget him, Simon C. He said, you better not let that be the reason you stop. And as a competitive person, it is the exact words I needed to hear in that moment because I was rethinking my entire life, I'm right? Sure. When that occurred. Um, and I talk about this moment and I usually in my lectures, because I do a lot of keynoting and public speaking, because you know, your girl likes to speak. Um, I ask the audience to stand up if they've ever been told that they're inadequate because of their gender and race. People are standing up in schools of architecture. People are standing up at conferences and professional settings. So I say all this to say it happened to me, not just because it only happens to me, but that's part of the narrative. And that's part of the injustice in terms of the education. It's not just merely about introducing the profession. It's also understanding and recognizing all the obstacles that's in our path once we start that process. Hence why the little kids book says, I can too. That self-affirmation is important so that when they're told they can't, they already know how ignorant that is. And then also just kind of recognizing just the privilege of studying architecture, the cost, the, the time um, is also of a position of privilege that I had. Like my parents were able to afford a private art school to get me through that and an Ivy League institution. I mean, me and Sally May, we together forever, right? And so like just understanding that is also another deterrent. And then the projects, right? When, when people of color, small kids of color are dreaming about their future profession and they think about architecture and construction, it is not a positive thing. In a lot of ways, we're the villains, right? We are the ones that comes in, erases their community, erase, moves them out, tells them that they're not good enough. You, after spending your whole life living in conditions that are subpar, we're going to make it better, but not for you. So can you get out of the way for somebody else, right? And so that's why I'm saying we need to become more relevant. We need to actually be more prevalent in this fight for civil rights and justice. It's not just when an RFP comes out, then we put some quals together and say, okay, we bought that cause. We can make posters, we can protest, we can use and synthesize really complex information. One example is Amar Arbery. Like I watched so many videos of seeing like where he ran and how he was attacked. And it was so traumatizing to just see and experience over and over again. I was like, as an architect designers, we could have clearly made a map, a graphic that explained what happened in a way that visually communicated with without having so much of the trauma. So we have all of these skill sets that we can absolutely ap apply well before brick and mortar is occurring, right? And then it's also about getting involved in these different programs, like programs that David had uh, developed for in Boston and also NOMA has Project Pipeline and ACE mentorship programs and AIA has the K through 12 programs. There's all these programs, again, about introducing architecture to, to little ones, but it's really understanding like the full pipeline of when kids are in school and they go to summer break, they're not able to get 
you know, summer internships. They're working regular hours to get money. And then so when it's time to graduate, they're at a disadvantage. They're not getting those jobs. They're not getting the IDP. They're not getting licensed, right? At the beginning, when you shared my intro, Sam, you talked about me being the 315th living African-American architect. That's powerful. But like, the, so I've been specifically focusing and studying on how can I help that number increase? And it's a very complex answer. But like when I won the Whitney M. Young Junior Award, it also automatically elevated me to the College of Fellows. I became the 20th African-American woman ever to elevate to the College of Fellows, the second in all of New York City, in New York. Shout out to Roberta Washington for being the first and holding us down for so long. But like, you know, I then become this example of like ways of getting to this highest leadership. And what I appreciate about it is this recognition's purely on me elevating other people, right? And so just recognizing me myself is on also a, a statement of, of, of protest of what is known and wearing my hair natural is saying like, this is also professional and working on projects and amplifying that is also part of it. And even in my ascension into presidency at uh, NOMA, I am the fifth woman ever to hold presidency in an organization that's been around for 50 years fighting for justice. And so the layers of kind of understanding and making spaces and places in the profession and the projects we do more equitable and just is really something that we've just begun. But I think it is absolutely within our power to dismantle and obliterate racism and sexism from the built environment and from society. But it requires more than just those who are disenfranchised by it to do the work to put that power, to breathe life into, to empower people to kind of push those things forward and to have these conversations and to actually put policy in place. We can't manage what we're not measuring. It's great to be like, yeah, 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 all about that justice. All right, well then what's your statistic? What are we doing? How are you hitting it? Are you on target? Are you over, you know, let's, let's get it done. And so um, I think in encouraging the next generation is also just beyond the introduction. It's the reinforcement, it's the support. And it's the full-on mentorship through getting into the profession. The world is a better place because of the gifts that you're giving to the world. I know it takes time and energy and thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for letting me elevate beyond the built environment. Um, if there's women and people of color who are not featured yet, please submit. Um, we are on IG, Beyond the Built. And every week, a different diverse designer takes it over, tells about their story, their legacy, the, their projects, as another way of just diversifying the narrative of what it takes to impact the built environment. Any and all support will always be appreciated. And thank you again. Yeah, listeners, go to beyondthebuilt.com and check out all of Pascal's work and the work of all these amazing folks that she's elevating and featuring. All right, folks, it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design. These are our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others somehow. I'll go first. Mine is an app called Streaks. I just started using it and I love it. So I'm really into New Year's resolutions and like using the holidays as a time to like reflect and come up with like what I'm going to change about myself and how I'm going to do it sort of in the new year. So I take New Year's resolutions very seriously, take personal goals very seriously. And I was like in the old days, like using a notepad or more recently using like my iPad to like mark down, like, you know, if I wanted to work out 12 times a month, I'd be like just kind of checking them off on the calendar. But this app called Streaks basically makes that so easy. It's so simple. It's literally just like a one page thing on your phone and you can add goals, 
right? And you can add any type of goal. You can add a goal that's a daily thing. So I have a goal that I want to wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and write my book. Uh, so anyway, I have a goal. It's it's basically a daily goal. And so every day when I wake up at 5 a.m. and write, you know, a few hundred words, I go on streaks and I basically like press and hold on that goal. And it gives me a little like mark on the calendar that like I did it. Or you can do things like, okay, I want to work out, you know, at least 12 times in a month. And so I've got, it's like a ring and there's 12 segments to the ring. And every time you press and hold on that goal, a little segment of the ring adds up. So it kind of gamifies these habits or building these new habits. You can even have goals that are things that you want to stop doing. So it will, it'll keep giving you the streak, right? It's about keeping the streak going. It'll keep giving you the streak until you say, oh shit, you know, I did it. I'm not a smoker, but if you were, you're like, I smoked up. Oh, okay. You broke your streak. So super cool. Very easy. It's like the easiest thing to set up. Uh, so check out the app called Streaks. All right, David, you're up. Thanks. That's really cool. Well, one thing that I do quite a bit of is go to live music. And during the uh, pandemic, I started doing masterclass online. And so masterclass, for those that don't know, is, you know, it, it, it's chefs, it's political figures, it's architects, it's designers. And most recently, I um, watched a series by S. Devlin. She's an artist and designer that creates uh, stage sets. She's done stage sets for Beyonce, for Kanye West, for U2, many of them that I've seen myself, but I never knew who the designer was behind it. And so for me, it was really kind of this epiphany of the, the architect or the designer behind these magical moments for me, right? And so really creating these fantastical experiences for pe for thousands and thousands of people. One of the things I was really inspired by with her is that she does do um, large scale art installations, but she also, um, she gives a lot of credit to her team, right? So she's always talking about her collaborators and who she does the work for. So I think, you know, kind of tying it back to what we're talking about, right? This isn't about one designer, right? This is about collaboration. It's about groups kind of working together for the common good. And I think that, that it's an important thing to kind of kind of think about. Yeah, that's awesome. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design and you want me to share it on the pod, you can tweet it at me and with a link is always helpful. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. David, always a pleasure. Love our conversations. Glad we got to tape this one. <laughs> so thanks for being part of it. Oh, my pleasure. It was a blast. Thank you. All right, that's our show. Again, I want to thank David Silverman and Pascal Sablon for an awesome conversation. And thank you all for joining us. It's so good. We'll post links to Pascal's work, the resources we talked about today. That'll all be on our episode page. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and in the menu, click on podcast. And you can always find the latest from us at Design Museum on social media. So on Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And then on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. And you can also search us out on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And if you want to hear the latest from Design Museum in your inbox every week, we share a very cool email newsletter that has all the things that are coming up. So check that out. You can subscribe right on our website. And then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design is Everywhere. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, every Thursday morning, we've got a new show. Your ratings and reviews really help us reach more people so that we can keep chatting about the transformative power of design and keep having great guests like Pascal and David. 
This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks again for being with us, and we'll talk again next week.